0: On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Normally, you'd hear Sean Spears' voice hosting these The Hub dialogues. I'm stepping in today to help out Sean with some continuing coverage of the ongoing war in southern Israel and Gaza. We're committed at The Hub to bringing you the latest analysis and insights on this conflict. And today, we're exceedingly fortunate to be able to share an interview I conducted earlier this week with Brett Stevens. Brett Stevens is a celebrated New York Times columnist Pulitzer Prize winner, the former editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, and someone I go to consistently to understand contemporary and world events and also deep analysis and insights into anti-Semitism and its pervasiveness in our society today. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brett Stevens. Here we go. Brett, welcome to the Hub Dialogues. I want to begin by just reflecting on the staggering reality of what uh, Israel and the international Jewish community is facing this week, the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. What does this mean? How is Israel feeling? How are Jews around the world assimilating? and trying to understand the terror, the violence, the depravity that we have seen over the previous days.
1: Uh, well, uh, one way to think about it, and maybe this works a little bit better with American audiences but than Canadian ones, but I'm sure they'll get the point. Uh, There are roughly a little more than 9 million Israelis, 9.3 million Israelis as of 2021. There are 330 million Americans. Portionally, there are 35 Americans for every one Israeli. So when uh, 900 uh, Israelis are massacred, murdered in cold blood, you can uh, do the math that comes to north of 30,000 Americans. That's 10, 911s. 9/11 was about 2,900 Americans. And that was a national trauma that has haunted us uh, here in the United States for two decades. This is 10 times that number. Second way of thinking about it, uh, Rudyard, is you know, Judaism is a religion, uh, but it's also a family. And in many cases, that's literally true. I have family in Israel. Uh, every every Jewish friend in I have in the United States or Canada does as well. And everyone I, I have in Israel no, at least knows someone who was murdered on Saturday. Because it's that small of a country. You know, when 9-11 happened, of course, I remember that uh, vividly but my guess is that relatively few Americans actually knew someone at first hand who was in the towers or in the pentagon or on flight 93 and even then it, it horrified us beyond anything we had experienced for generations uh everyone in israel everyone in israel has a brother a sister a cousin who is gone and that m- might help explain the rawness of the emotion that I think every Jew in Israel or in the diaspora is is feeling uh, uh, right now. Literally members of our family, close friends, or at the most close friends of friends have been torn from us in the cruelest and most despicable and cowardly way imaginable.
0: Well put, Brett. Um, very well put. Let's turn to immediate events. It now looks like the opening stages are set for a significant ground offensive into Gaza to neutralize uh, this heinous terrorist threat. Your thoughts on that as the consequential result of this weekend's massacres? What's at stake? What's at play?
1: We need to look at this through multiple layers. Uh, One is the question of the immediate ground offensive, how that's conducted, what its aims are. Can it perhaps rescue some of the more than 100 Israelis and foreigners, by the way, there are Americans right now who are hostages in Gaza. I think they're German citizens. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they're Canadians as well. And my hope is that the Israelis not only think hard about the tactical objective of punishing uh, Hamas and degrading its war machine, but the strategic question of whether Israel can accept Hamas as the de facto sovereign in the Gaza Strip Uh, for more than a decade, for 16 years since Hamas took power in Gaza in a very bloody coup by throwing their political opponents out of windows. the Israeli calculation, and I have to say, uh, not a great one, Um, uh, in some ways a cynical one, was that uh, bad as Hamas is, it's a containable threat, and it presented um, certain advantages for uh, Israel. It divided the Palestinian polity between the West Bank, controlled by Fatah, and Mahmoud Abbas, the president, nominally the president, and Uh, Gaza and the West Bank. It was an advertisement to uh, Israel and the wider world why Israel couldn't contemplate further territorial concessions to the Palestinians given the possibility of Hamas uh, uh, taking over. There was a sense that even though Hamas was a threat, technologies like Iron Dome and the technology to stop the, the tunnels that had been a problem for a number of years uh, made it more of a nuisance than a, than a strategic threat. And so there was what in Hebrew parlance is called a conceptia a concept um, that this was an arrangement that for all of its flaws basically suited Israel's strategic interests. It allowed is, it, it allowed Israel to sort of cauterize the Gaza threat while it it dealt with larger problems as far as Israel was concerned, namely the, the threat from from Iran. Well, that concept turns out to have been fatally flawed uh, because Hamas was more willful, uh, had greater capacity and more, I uh, hate to say this, I, I don't say this in a positive sense, more strategic imagination than uh, Israel uh, gave it credit for. So the Israelis, first of all, are going to have to think about a new status quo for Gaza. I wrote a column a few days ago imagining what that might what that might be and how it actually could end up being productive uh, for the region, for all parties concerned. The second risk, however, is that as this uh, uh, as this uh, theater of war unfolds in Gaza, other theaters will open, possibly in the West Bank with uh, an effort at a new Intifada, possibly among Israeli Arabs possibly with vulnerable Israeli populations abroad. Um, At any given time, there are lots of Israelis wandering around India, Nepal, wherever, South America, a year after military service. And then, of course, most worrying is in Lebanon with Hezbollah, and then against Iran uh, itself. So uh, that's a long answer, but it's important to realize that we may be not sort of looking at the horror in the rear view mirror, at least in the midst of it, but looking toward a very long, very protracted, very bloody war on multiple fronts against multiple adversaries.
0: If we think about the risks of escalation here, you've just elucidated a couple of them, the risk from Southern Lebanon, uh, the risk of Iran, and uh, it's... Self avowed policy of the destruction of the state of Israel. Do you see the potential here for it? Sounds like it, Brett, like that this could be a tripwire for a larger response? Because surely, Brett, if we imagine a ground offensive in the coming days, lasting potentially for weeks, who knows how long, to neutralize the Hamas terrorist threat, this Will elicit a response, a reaction from the Arab Street in the Arab world? Is, is escalation inevitable?
1: No, it's not inevitable. Uh, you know, I mean, I was modestly heartened by what appeared to be the Iranians and Hamas and Hezbollah walking back a claim that Iran had greenlighted and masterminded. The attack. It was. It seemed to suggest to me that they were saying, "We don't want to scream in your face. We did this. Uh, come get us." Uh, that they were worried about the prospect of escalation uh, as well. So, the the Arab world, leaving aside the Arab street, whatever that means, a kind of a term of art of some emptiness, the Arab world, whatever it says publicly. People like uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed of of the United Arab Emirates, they're actually no friends of Hamas. They see Hamas as a cat's paw for Iranian power, and they wouldn't mind seeing Hamas uh, defenestrated, uh, or at least not literally, but thrown out of power in Gaza because it's a threat to them. It, it's it's a way of uh, of it. Uh, uh, even though Hamas, of course, is a Sunni organization, they've essentially become an arm of Shiite power, which they fear. Egypt, uh, just across the border from Gaza, also fears uh, also fears Hamas uh, because Hamas is an arm of the Muslim Brotherhood or a, a cousin of the Muslim Brotherhood. Lots of parties are interested in getting rid of Hamas. They're just not going to say it publicly. And I would add. If I were an Israeli policymaker, the reason Israel was able to make inroads, diplomatic inroads recently in the Arab world with openings to UAE and Bahrain and Morocco and even Sudan was the perception that Israel was the strong horse in the region, that Israel had capacity, military capacity, will, and initiative. If they are now perceived as a weak horse, as as um, immobilized by the horror that's befallen them, then the Arab world is going to swiftly turn away from from the the rapprochement with Israel because it isn't the ties aren't based on love, uh, they're not based on kinship, they're based on a strategic perception, and Israel now has an interest in showing that that perception
0: is astute. Brett, do you have a sense here that Hamas has dangerously overreached? that possibly this horrible attack exceeded beyond their wildest expectations. And as a result, they're vulnerable right now. They're on their back foot in terms of international approbation and condemnation. They're on their back foot in terms of some of their traditional sponsors like Qatar uh, and other players in the region. Is this, in fact, an opportunity now, Brett, to to push on Hamas, um, not just on the military front, but a full-spectrum renunciation of this terrorist organization?
1: I don't think Hamas is behaving as if it has overreached. They are gloating. They are celebrating. They are basking in the approval of Arab streets and, in fact, Western streets uh, around the world. Secondly, part of the cynical calculation of Hamas is they win when they kill Jews. And They win when the Israelis kill Palestinians because they use those dead Palestinians uh, for propaganda purposes to advertise the fact that Israel is a oppressive colonial occupier uh, uh, state. Third, their experience of past Israeli policy is that while Israel will, will take wax at them in response to provocations, uh, Israel's not yet prepared to uh, remove them as the governing power in Gaza for the reasons I mentioned uh, earlier. So it's not at all clear to them, and it, it's not entirely clear to me that they're going to come out of this uh, the losers. The rhetoric I've heard coming out of Jerusalem is we're going to hit them really even harder this time. Um, but again, according to the calculus of Hamas, uh, those losses are themselves a form of victory. So uh, I think until Israel decides to change the concept, until Israel agrees with uh, other regional powers, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and of course the United States, that Hamas has to go, then Hamas is going to be uh, is going to remain in in power, or it's certainly going to re- have major influence among Palestinians. They don't. It's it's we should be careful not to apply kind of Western standards of advantage and disadvantage to a movement whose aims are so fundamentally different from what we think are the aims of most political organizations or or regimes
0: let's talk a little bit about the Western response President Biden today on Tuesday the 10th of October gave a strong speech um, from the White House uh, a unilateral unconditional, Uh, renunciation and condemnation of uh, these terrorist attacks, these massacres that have been perpetrated by Hamas on Israelis and on Jews. Do you sense, Brett, there's something maybe different this time in terms of the international reaction and possibly international support continuing after we know what will be a difficult phase in in the weeks and possibly months to come as the conflict goes to the ground in Gaza.
1: We'll see. Uh, in, in the past, uh, when, when Israel has been hit like this, the pattern of American administrations, both Republican and Democratic, have been rhetorical statements of support for Israel, uh, followed by cold feet after a week or so. And you can go back to the George W. Bush administration Reagan administration, the Obama administration, the Clinton administration see this pattern. Uh, I think Joe Biden is pro-Israel in his bones. Uh, he is a president who knew Golda Meir uh, 50 years ago when she was prime minister, and he was a sitting U.S. senator. That's how long Joe Biden has been a uh, a leading figure in American politics. Um, he feels it very strongly. And uh uh, and he's an emotional politician. And here, I, I don't mean that in the least bit in a disparaging way. I think it's it's good to have a president who can look at those images and uh, break down in tears as uh, as i'm as I freely admit, uh, I have many times these past uh, a few days if you if 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 there's someone listening to this who can look at what happened to children in that kibbutz, to the teenagers at that music festival, to the grandparents and little babies abducted to Gaza, to the women being spat on, the corpses being spat on, and not say to themselves, that is pure evil. Pure evil. Leaving aside all other political considerations, that is pure evil. I would submit there is something the matter with you. You should really take a good hard look at your moral compass and say, how can you not, from the bottom of your heart, say, all politics aside, this can never happen in a civilized world? And I'm glad the President of the United States is giving voice to that emotion, that outrage, that moral impulse that I think every decent person at a moment like this ought to share.
0: Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab The Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. We are seeing, though, Brett, these voices that we knew would be there often for whatever set of circumstances on the left who've traditionally been supporters of the palestinian independence movement i've been shocked personally i wonder what your reaction is to their seeming inability to differentiate hamas from possibly more legitimate expressions of palestinian uh uh defiance and you know, here in Toronto, we've had uh, protests on the street where people in large numbers are gathering together to wave not just Palestinian, but uh, Hamas uh, imagery and and symbols. Brett, this is shocking to me. It suggests that anti-Semitism is a far bigger problem than I certainly realized as a non-Jew. And I've been thinking a bit to myself, you know, I've, I've got to spend some time on this because... Um, This has brought home to me the extent of anti-Semitism in our society.
1: So this is, in fact, the subject of uh, my column in the New York Times um, that will appear in print on October uh, 11th, I watched from the sidelines a rally in New York City, and I gathered there was another one in Toronto and around the world. Uh, A pro-Palestinian rally. And I was wondering, would there be even a perfunctory statement of condemnation, even a kind of a a nod towards the goal of nonviolence? Nothing. This was euphoria. It was euphoria. It was cheering. And the organizations that had put this together were the usual hodgepodge of far left-wing organizations. The Democratic Socialists of America had been Urging people to attend uh the rally. This is the left-wing party that now has members of Congress, the so-called squad, uh, although at least two of the squad members did condemn the rally in mealy-mouthed way, but they did they did condemn it. Um and uh this is a left which those of us who follow anti-Semitism closely, we've known for a long time, whatever else they're saying, their version of opposition to Israeli policies, indistinguishable from anti-Semitism. They don't want Israel to get out of the West Bank or uh, uh, ease restrictions on Gaza. They want Israel to no longer exist. And more than that, when they watch hundreds of Israelis being massacred, they are cheering. They are justifying. They're saying resistance against occupation is not terrorism. You know, when you're thinking is that Zionism equals genocide when that's your equation then any means are justified in stopping zionism because it's genocide according to that according to that perverted uh, logic and too much of the left has been caught up in that thinking you know look i uh, at least until 3 days ago always considered myself a supporter of at least conceptually a palestinian state if a palestinian state is a neighbor to israel the way canada is a neighbor to the united states What's the problem? I don't think Zionism came into being in order to exercise control over people who didn't want to be controlled by the state of Israel. I get that. What you have is a horribly tangled situation that emerged from a succession of wars that were started to to wipe Israel off the map, to kill Israel in its in its crib. And this is a tr- complex tragedy that has unfolded over multiple generations. There's no simple answer, I I hate even to use the word solution, uh, uh, to it. And there are perfectly decent arguments to be made that Israel should change its policy. But the objection of this side of the left, of the far left to Israel, is not about the policy. It is about the state of Israel and its right to exist in any borders. And people who sincerely care about Palestinian interests have a real interest right now, this moment, in dissociating themselves in the strongest possible way from what Hamas just did. Because a Palestinian movement that is captured effectively by Hamas, ideologically by Hamas, is one that will never give birth to a Palestinian state because no rational government in Israel will ever allow that to happen after what just happened on Saturday
0: well said and I only just hope Brett that you know some dis- deserved discrediting will now go on and that some people will now have the common sense to walk back uh, these statements which have been issued both not simply by individuals but often by institutions our labor movement here in Canada, bizarrely uh seems to have taken a a kind of a one hand this on an other hand that kind of view of this massacre uh these terrorist acts uh you know some reckoning is is needed here and it's good to see president biden our own prime minister now has spoken out forcefully on this i think it's important Brett, for listeners to hear from you because you're so good at explaining this to people just why it is important that the West, the United States in particular, uh, support Israel, that this is more than just um, supporting an ally, that there are causes and principles and ideals here that are greater than just our national interest, however narrowly or expansively one defines that. Can you give us that that case, that rationale? Because I think it's one we need to be reminded of.
1: Let me give you two cases for it. Um, If you're listening to this show and you consider yourself a liberal or progressive and your values are for feminism, your values are for LGBTQ rights, your values are for uh, a free and vigorous press uh, holding uh, people in power to account, your values are for Uh, an open society, then the state in the Middle East that most closely aligns with your values is Israel. Now, you can absolutely and emphatically uh, oppose Israeli policy vis-a-vis the Palestinians. There are millions of Israelis who feel as you do, right? Just as there are millions of Americans who vehemently opposed uh, the Trump administration, uh, even when he was uh, Even when he was the president, but try finding LGBTQ rights in Gaza. Try finding women's rights uh, uh, in 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 most of the Arab world. They're non-existent. So if you care that to see those values defended, even if imperfectly, and they are imperfectly defended in uh, around the world, then your instinctive sympathies should be with Israel that doesn't mean you refrain from criticism criticism can be a form of love uh, in in my family it's the most common form of love at least as far as my my mom is concerned right but but it sh- they should be they should be with Israel now if you're a conservative and you want to be sure that other countries are fighting for themselves are uh, developing strategies and methods to stand up for democratic life, for uh, free markets, uh, for the idea of the West, again, a conservative judeo-Christian values. Um, then you have a conservative case to be made for an alliance with Israel. You know, back in 1973, 50 years ago during the uh, the uh, uh, Yom Kippur War, Israel had to depend on American Hawk missiles for air defense. Right now at the American airbase in Guam, uh, Anderson Air Base, which is at risk from uh, a possible Chinese attack, out in Guam, they're relying on the Iron Dome system, which was developed in Israel. American tanks, and uh, i uh, and I think this is true throughout uh, NATO, are turning towards Israeli technology to defeat. Um, uh, to, to to better protect themselves against uh, against RPGs and other kinds of of threats, so Israel is generating value, uh, economic value, uh, strategic value, tactical value for Western states, and I think you should look at it in those two lights. Whether as a, as a liberal, your values more closely aligned with Israel. And certainly they do with Hamas or the Palestinian Authority. And the same is true in uh, as a conservative. And it's also, I'll make one final point, Rudyard, which is that we no longer live in a world where our oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific, are our moats. We can't afford to simply turn our back on the world and imagine that it will turn its back on us. We can try to do that, but eventually it comes back to haunt us. So we have. An interest in supporting allies at the periphery on the front lines between open societies and closed ones, whether it's Taiwan, South Korea, Ukraine, or Israel, right, who are willing to fight and defend the way of life that we hold dear. And if we can support them in that effort, then it spares us the risk of having to do it for ourselves. So one of the arguments that I make thank goodness look at the Ukrainians fighting for themselves all we are doing is supplying them with the tools they are supplying the lives and the risk and the same is true in Israel so that to me is the is is the set of values that should undergird broad western support for an embattled imperfect but democratic state like Israel
0: great insights spread as always um let's conclude just by having you do what's always dangerous for thinkers who think big thoughts uh it and that's projecting forward what again i'm not going to hold anyone to any any predictions but more what are you looking for to try to understand where this war will go next do you see any potentials for things that you would identify or see and say to yourself okay it's clearly going in this direction, or it's clearly going in that direction. I'm trying to get a sense from you, Brett, of like markers and then on ramps and off ramps as we try to imagine what might happen over the weeks and months to come.
1: I hate those questions. I mean, ask me about <laughs> what's going to happen a hundred years, and, and uh, we'll all be dead when when uh, the predictions are are noted. Um, look. We have to look at very carefully at a few things. Will Palestinians try in the West Bank try to uh, start a third intifada uh, to complicate the task for the Israeli military? And will Israeli Arabs join them as they did in 2021, briefly, in some rioting that really shook uh, the uh, the inner security of of the of 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 the State of Israel? Secondly, more importantly, you know, we've seen some skirmishing up in the north is that going to escalate or is that going to end? And uh, things can turn on a dime in this scenario, but uh, that's a matter of looking very carefully at signals. The fact that the Iranians seem to uh, step back from acknowledging participation in the massacres was a good sign that things won't escalate. But again, that could, that could change uh, uh, very, very uh, quickly. And the third thing is whether the Israelis will try to solve their near problem by dealing with their far problem. Uh, if Israel concludes that Iran had a major hand in in the in the attack and it wouldn't surprise me in the, in the least and, and and if the Israelis have good intelligence to that effect, they might want to essentially uh, adopt the Russian model of escalation escalate to de-escalate. They might want to go very big and shock the Iranians so as to do two things. Number one, strike the central enemy as opposed to the peripheral uh, peripheral enemy. And number two, change the psychological equation here. You know, Israel cannot obtain an unconditional victory because they're never going to get an unconditional surrender. It's never going to be a uh, surrender ceremony on the Battleship Missouri in, in uh, Tokyo Bay but what they can do is achieve an unequivocal victory. That is to say, one that leaves no doubt in anyone's mind, whether it's in, in in Riyadh or in Gaza or in Tehran, who the victor of this battle was. And that's important because if Israel can achieve an unequivocal victory, it restores deterrence, it restores a sense of of, of, of self-respect, it gives... Uh, wavering allies like the Saudis and the Emiratis are reasons to think, okay, the Israelis got surprised, but this is still a capable adversary. And it might give the Palestinians room to think we never want to do that again. We have to move down a different path. We have to think of a future Palestinian state, not as the tip of a spear aimed at the heart of the Jewish state, but as an independent, sovereign territory, uh, and perhaps one day a state that wants to be progressive in the best sense, that wants to contribute to a better region, a better civilization, that wants the Palestinian name to be connected to something better than what we saw on Saturday.
0: Yeah, that is critical. I think the reestablishment of credible deterrence, um, this attack, this horrible massacre has eroded Israeli deterrence. There's just no other way to look at it. And I think reestablishing that is going to be one of the key objectives of what comes next. And we're all going to know what that looks like when credible deterrence is restored. Final question, uh, Brett, I know this is very personal to you. You have many uh, friends, family um, in Israel. What are you hearing from people on the ground? What is the mood in Israel right now how are israelis responding to the shock have they, are they coming out of that shock what is the what do you think the national mood and attitude is going to be going forward now
1: i think anguish is competing with fury and um very much the way it it felt for americans on 911 and the days after i think there's a sense that um First, they're going to settle some scores with their enemies. They're going to bury their dead and, and mourn them. There's going to be a political reckoning real soon. As soon as this war is over, I don't see how this failed leadership in Israel can possibly survive after a debacle on uh, of this magnitude. But the Israelis will sort themselves out. I'm sure of that. You know, Israel has a lot of problems and I underscore it is very far from a perfect country. I don't know of a perfect country and um, it's a country of of human beings trying to make their way through history but it is a country that has a great deal of social capital that is to say they at at beyond the capacity of the state people recognize one another as brothers and sisters a um a colleague, um, who I, I, I happen to know, sort of with one degree of separation personally, a, a, a journalist for a Israeli newspaper uh, Haaretz, Amir Tibon, was um, lived in a kibbutz hard on the Gaza border and was stuck in the safe house of his house when he could hear the terrorists uh, outside with his wife and his two young daughters, and he called his father who is a retired general in his 60s and his father and mother got in a car and drove down from tel aviv to rescue their child 35-year-old journalist stuck in a safe house on the drive down they encountered wounded soldiers so then first they rescued the wounded soldiers and then they continued to drive down getting picking up soldiers along the way this retired general effectively inserted himself in a unit as a 62, 63-year-old man and fought his way into his son's kibbutz to rescue his son and his grandchildren. Say what you will about Israel. In a society where that happens, that society in the long run is going to endure. Mm -hmm. Um, And we should be looking, and Israel will be looking for examples like that to remind itself that it is still a country worth fighting for, still a country worth loving, still a country worth having.
0: Brett Stevens, thank you so much for coming on short notice today to talk about the issue that we've all got to wrap our minds and, as you remind us, our hearts around uh, in the days and months to come. We look forward to reading your columns, your guiding light for many of us in understanding these and so many other contemporary issues. So thank you for your insights and your words of wisdom uh, this afternoon.
1: Thank you for having me. And I'm hoping that the next time I'm part of a debate or conversation, it's under happier circumstances.
0: You're here. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.